Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. In part one of this series, we talked about the CIA paramilitary officers who entered Afghanistan shortly after the 9-11 attacks, like Mike Spann, who in November of 2001, during the Battle of Kala Ijangi, was the first American to be killed in combat operations during this war. Part two, we talked about the use of American air power on the battlefield, specifically the story of Tech Sergeant Michael Stockdale, who, as an Air Force combat controller serving during the Battle of Tora Bora, brought down over 600,000 pounds of munitions onto Al-Qaeda positions. And while Tora Bora was a tactical victory, it's widely believed that that's the time frame where bin Laden escaped and moved into Pakistan. But even though he took some of his kind of key leadership figures with him, there was still Al-Qaeda scattered all across the country, and they have to be rooted out one at a time. That's the focus of part three, the use of special operations raids to hunt down al-Qaeda scattered across Afghanistan. Today, we have the story of Master Sergeant Anthony Pryor, a Special Forces soldier serving with Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, part of the 5th Special Forces Group, and a raid his, his team conducted in southern Afghanistan in early 2002. Now, the war in Afghanistan is going to be different in a lot of ways, but if we compare the strategy to that of, you know, let's say, conventional warfare like the European theater during the Second World War really helped to draw out the contrast. In that conflict, World War II, looking at the European theaters, the United States and our allies faced off against Nazi Germany, we were starting at the bottom. We were, you know, the plan was to kill, capture, destroy as much of the German military and then eventually their country and their infrastructure so that the country you know, came to their knees and surrendered, would take no more. There was never really a leading strategy of trying to take out Hitler and the key Nazi leadership. In fact, we didn't really get to those folks until the very end of the war. I'm talking the Battle of Berlin, like the last few days. In Afghanistan, it's going to be the opposite. We're going to start at the top with a goal of decapitating the Al-Qaeda leadership. We know, or everybody knows, that putting a couple dozen special forces soldiers on the ground in Afghanistan is not going to resolve the issue of Islamic extremism. That's a long-term fight that'll probably go on well beyond my lifetime. But the intent in Afghanistan at this point with hunting down the leadership is that we can at least stop the bleeding. There are Al-Qaeda fighters scattered all across, well, the world, but in this case, we're just talking Afghanistan. And many of them are, are bodyguards or just that soldiers, couriers. Maybe they're being groomed for future attacks in the West. But if we can start at the leadership, we have the possibility of actually disrupting what might be attacks in the planning. We can disrupt communications channels, make people uncomfortable, move to different areas, disperse a little bit, at the very least, maybe make it harder to carry out an attack like we just saw on 9-11. That said, it's also recognized that the minute we take out one leader in this type of organization, they'll just be replaced 
from someone else. There's going to be a steady supply of people waiting to to step into that gap. But if the person we take out or the the couple folks we take out, capture or kill, were a part of a larger plan, then maybe that plan falls apart or maybe it just takes a little bit longer to come together. So again, kind of a stopping the bleeding mentality while we're focused on the larger issue of battling Islamic extremism. Now, this type of strategy going after individuals is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly intelligence driven. I mean, we're not looking for regiments or brigades or divisions in the battlefield. We're not looking for cities or bridgeheads. We're looking for a person or a couple people in all of Afghanistan. It's a needle in a haystack. And as we get into this, you're going to see that it kind of starts to look a little bit like law enforcement, like a manhunt, like you would see you know, rolling up an organized crime family or drug cartel. The general play is that based off of, you know, a stack of intelligence that you have, it points to target A, let's call it. Forces are sent in or a bomb is dropped. We'll get back to that later. Kind of the differences. They hit the target, gather more intelligence, and that intelligence with what you already have on hand helps paint a picture for maybe person or group B, target B. You then watch the compound, watch the people a week, a day, whatever it is later, you hit that target, gather more intelligence. That points to person C and then D and then E. You see how it kind of plays out. And the idea here is that hopefully you're working up the chain, right? Kind of working one level at a time to get to the leadership figures that are still within Afghanistan or out. Maybe going sideways, but it's it's also worth noting that there were dry holes. There would be targets hit that didn't really produce any sort of actionable intelligence. But this type of thing had to go fast. If you're thinking about a group of fighters like Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, how long does it take when your buddy gets rolled up for you to change your phone or maybe move out of the house you've been living in for a few months or heck, leave the country? So not only is this intelligence driven, it's it's really reliant upon well, I'll say is real-time intelligence. It's stuff we have to act on very, very quickly. In late January 2002, a couple compounds are identified as potential targets. They're suspected of holding munitions, kind of storing uh, like a weapons cache that will hold machine guns, mortars, small arms, etc. for the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. There is There's a uh, surveillance is placed on the two compounds, both from folks on the ground, as well as assets overhead and watches it for a period of time. And they pull two big pieces of intel out of this. First, there are women and children present, which takes a kinetic strike or dropping a bomb on the compounds out of the question. Like I was mentioning a second ago, that's one of the two ways this usually be dealt with, depending on what Depending on the situations on the ground, you might just drop a bomb, kill all the fighters in that building, and then maybe go in after the fact if you could to collect the intelligence that's there. In this case, because of the presence of women and children, we're going to have to go in on the ground. The second big piece of intelligence is the number of people in this compound. We're talking a couple dozen, which means that we'll have to have a sizable friendly force on the ground to overcome those odds. I mean, they're in a defensive position, essentially. And on January 23rd and 24th, 2002, Master Sergeant Pryor and the men of Alpha Company 1st Battalion, 5th Special Forces Group get the call to execute a raid on this target. 
Now, being able to watch a compound for a period of time before a strike is incredibly valuable. There's a lot of stuff you can learn from that. And, and you know, given the option of either being able to watch it or not, you're always going to take more intelligence in the compound. But there are things that you don't see and you can't see, no matter how long you have aircraft overhead or people on the ground watching, watching the compound of choice. Nothing's going to be able to pick up the fact that there could be mines in the courtyard or trip wires in the doors or a machine gun set up just inside a doorway to mow down anybody that, that dares come in before they even know what happens. Those are the risks that Master Sergeant Pryor and his men are facing the night of January 23rd, 2002, when they conduct simultaneous breaches at various points across these two compounds under the cover of darkness. Now, there's a lot of benefits of conducting raids at night. Generally speaking, in the war in Afghanistan, we were the only ones with night vision, although there were plenty of reports at times. Not, not I shouldn't just say reports. That makes it sound like maybe, maybe not. Plenty of times after a fight, there, were night, there was night vision equipment recovered from Al-Qaeda fighters specifically. But generally speaking, the United States in this conflict has the advantage at night. We can fight at night. We're prepared to do so. But there's also something about having a helicopter land in your front yard and your door being kicked in at two in the morning by heavily armed men that's, that makes people surrender. It's overwhelming. It's terrifying. And listen, these raids don't have to kill everybody involved to be successful. We're trying to gather intelligence. We'd be just as happy capturing many of these leaders. In fact, maybe more so. You can get more intelligence from a captured Al-Qaeda fighter than a dead one most of the time. So these night raids, not always, but in many instances do produce a, a raid with no shots fired. That's not going to be the case here on January 23rd and 24th, 2002, about 60 miles outside of Kandahar. As Pryor and his men enter the courtyard, they are fired upon by a guard. This wakes up the rest of the fighters in the compound and a, a firefight ensues. Pryor pushes forward, he and one other soldier, to through the fire to start clearing the compounds uh, that are housing the enemy, kind of hold up firing through the doors and windows and cracks. As they're entering one of the compounds, again, in the dark, they're passed by an enemy fighter. You have to think, you know, two people running or moving quickly, um, a little bit of chaos in the battlefield, and you blink and you kind of run by your enemy and do a double take. Pryor's partner turns to eliminate that threat just as Master Sergeant Pryor turns into a room that houses, as he sees now, at least three fighters. They are picking up their weapons to begin firing out the window at his men still outside in the courtyard. So Pryor methodically raises his rifle and moves from one target to the second to the third, knocks down all three. Now, a raid like this or a room in the dark in the middle of combat is an assault on the senses. I mean, you've already got the adrenaline spiked in the middle of a firefight. There's loud noises all around, people yelling, radios going off. Again, under night vision, you're night or utilizing night vision goggles. 
when you're in a small room like this or any room and you start shooting, the sound can be a little overwhelming, but it also, even if you know it's coming and you're the one doing the shooting, the flash of the muzzle can throw you off a little bit. It can be disorienting. As Pryor knocks down these three fighters, he is hit over the shoulder with something. There's a fourth fighter in the room that he hadn't seen. The man, the the blow breaks Pryor's collarbone, dislocates his shoulder. The man jumps on his back, rips his night vision goggles off, and starts clawing at Pryor's eyes. And Pryor has to play the cards he's dealt. He will, in short order, throw this man to the ground, an act that pushes his or pops his shoulder back into place, and will kill the man in hand-to-hand combat. As he is doing so, he sees the three guys he had shot previously start to, or a couple of them at least, start to move towards their weapons. They weren't dead yet. So he takes out his sidearm, takes out his sidearm, finishes those three threats, and now with four dead enemy fighters in this room, moves back out to the courtyard to link up with his men to continue the raid. For this action, charging forward in the midst of the firefight to clear the room, to protect his men that are they're taking fire out in the courtyard and then single-handedly killing four fighters, Pryor would be awarded the Silver Star. Now, the fog of war is ever-present, and it hangs pretty thick in Afghanistan, especially when you have factions or militias that are liable to change side in the middle of a conflict. After the raid, or as the raid was wrapping up, they were consolidating munitions to destroy and gathering intelligence. Someone came across a flag of the Afghan Interim Authority. This was the government that the United States was helping to stand. This was our ally. These were our Afghan allies, the Afghan Interim Authority is. And it started to take hold. A radio call went back and just confirm we're not in the wrong spot. And it was confirmed you're on the right compound. You're hitting the right target. It looks like after the fact, after some analysis was done, the intelligence may have been old. And rather than being Al-Qaeda and Taliban, this group of Afghans were in the process of transitioning to supporting the new Afghan government in the United States or considering it or it was in the future plans either way this is part of the challenge in a conflict like this where nobody's wearing a uniform there's no easy way to walk in and say wait a minute that's not an al-qaeda uniform who are these guys add to the complexity that there were two compounds hit remember one of the compounds there was a brief fight a handful of shots fired but the bulk of the afghans inside surrendered in the compound that Pryor entered, a firefight raged. These men fired on Pryor and his special forces soldiers as they entered the compound. So they returned fire and killed those that were shooting at their men. After the raid wrapped up, a raid that would kill between 17 and 21 Afghans. I've seen a couple different numbers there with another 27 captured. There was a investigation done of this incident and none of the blame was placed with Pryor or his men. 
they were executing a raid based off of the intelligence that they were given. And that when they arrived on site, were engaged by hostile fire. And in order to protect his men and save their lives, they returned fire. And that resulting engagement killed the 17 to 21 Afghans. A sad incident, nonetheless. In this entire raid, only one U.S. soldier would even be wounded. Now, that's a lopsided fight, but it wouldn't always be the case. In just a few or just barely a month later, Operation Anaconda would kick off, and it would see the deadliest single day for the United States in the war thus far. It's the Battle of Takurgar, otherwise known as Roberts Ridge. That's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.